Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast, talking about chapter two. Hail and farewell, rather brash with the firings there, more, just walking in, firing everyone. These poor actors. Um, that's their job, you know. Swim says to the mumma fish, she says, I found today's reading entertaining. George by now had extensive experience with theatre through his association with the Literary Theatre Society... His exasperation with the naivety of Edward and Yeats is understandable. I liked when he said, Edward begged me to be patient, but in a very few minutes it was clear to me that patience meant wasting time. Tegrific agreed that, that was a, gave him a good chuckle. Um, the General George, says Swim, mentioned in, mentioned in General Jean-Joseph Amable Humbert was a French military officer who participated in several notable military conflicts in the late 18th and early 19th century. George probably mentions the general because he participated in the Irish Rebellion, 1798. The British repulsed the ship he was on. As the ship was sunk, hundreds of men perished, but Humbert was among the last to escape. I believe we are going to hear a lot about Edwards, the Heather, Field and Yeats, the Countess Kathleen. We've got a synopsis of the Heather Field and the Countess Kathleen. Okay, that's the two plays that they've written. Um, Edward Martin was from Dublin. Cool. Um, and the Countess Kathleen is a verse a drama by Yeats. In blank verse with some lyrics dedicated to Maud Gorn. Okay, synopsis. The play is set ahistorically in Ireland during a famine. The idealistic countess of the title sells her soul to the devil so that she can save her tenants from starvation and from damnation from having sold their own souls. After her death, she is redeemed as her motives are altruistic and ascends to heaven. One moment. Um... My husband and I are going camping the next few days. No cell or internet service in the Churacahua Mountains or the New Mexico and Arizona border. Here are some pictures. Oh, very nice. Okay. I guess we'll see you in a few days. Wow, that looks cool. Up in the Rocky Mountains, eh? Very good. Um, all right. So, let us kick on with this reading about to sneeze in a second I can feel it we've got through a very nice rehearsal I whispered taking Edward's arm very satisfactory indeed dear Edward for it was just as well to show a bold front although indeed I was a little frightened the responsibility of collecting an efficient company was now my share of the Irish literary theatre and if I failed and the place did not go to Dublin even so it were better that the project should fall through than that he play, the play should be distributed among such odds and oddments one can go out hunting I said to Edward on bad horses but one can't go out hunting on goats and I impressed this point of view upon Yeats too, begging of him to try to find a small part among the peasants in this play for the gentleman who had thrown the chair at me. 
He had since apologised and seemed so distressed at his own bad conduct that I thought I must do something for him. A few words to speak, that is all I ask, Yeats. Edward and I are going to the Strand to find a card and Tyrrell and Mrs Tyrrell, and we're going to the bun shop, where we have an appointment with Miss Vernon's niece. Her speaking of verse, don't trouble. I'll bring you back a Countess Kathleen, my good friend. Edward sat back in the handsome, too terrified for speech, and as we went along I explained to him the disaster that had been averted. At last we came to the green room club, and opposite my two friends of mine were living. The wife is just the woman to play Mrs. Tyrrell. She wouldn't do the Countess Kathleen badly either, but that, be that as it may, she'll have to play it. And we went up the stairs, praying that we might find her at home. She was and after a little solicitation agreed to come with us. Now, Edward, do you follow in another cab? I'll jump into this one with Miss Dash, and we'll tell her about the Irish Literary Theatre, and that we want her to play leading parts in Dublin in two of the most beautiful plays of modern times, Mrs. Tyrrell and the Countess Kathleen Wilde, the miles away. There's Yeats, and putting up my stick, I stopped the cab. The man in the long black cloak, like a Bible reader, coming out of the bun shop with the woman in the long green cloak followed by a pretty girl, the new countess Kathleen asked. Deeply engaged, I said in conversation. It was difficult to attract his attention and his emotions were so violent that he could hardly collect himself sufficiently to bow to the new Kathleen, countess Kathleen. And for the first time his master of words could not find words to tell us of the joy he had experienced at hearing his verses properly spoken. Miss Vernon's niece had recited the monologue in the second act. I'm glad, Yeats, very glad, and now you'll have the pleasure of hearing somebody else reciting the monologue, but won't you hear? The monologue isn't the part, my dear young lady, I said, turning to a girl about sixteen. We've reserved one of the fairies for you, and you'll look enchanting in a blue veil. The Countess Kathleen requires an experienced actress. Now, Miss Dash... You who can speak verse better than any living actress, will you read us the monologue for your pleasure and for ours? I have told Mr. Yeats about you, and now will you be so kind? The experienced actress went on the stage, and while she recited, my mind turned over all the possible carton tools in the green room club, but Yeats had been listening, and as soon as I had congratulated her, he began to talk to her about his method. My anger was checked by the thought that the quickest way, and perhaps the only way, to rid ourselves of Yeats would be to ask him to go on the stage and read his verses to us. There was no choice for him but to comply, and when he left the stage I took him by the arm, saying, One can hear that kind of thing, my dear fellow, on Sunday in any Methodist chapel. Yeats's face betrayed his disappointment, but there is a fund of good sense in him which can be relied upon, and he had already begun to understand that. However good his ideas might be in themselves, he had not had enough experience to carry them out, and that there was no time to experiment. What I would do with his play would not be what he wanted, but I should realise something. Now, Edward, I'll say goodbye. I must get back to the Green Room Club. I may find your husband there, Miss Dash, playing cards. If I do, I shall try to persuade him to undertake the stage management. I'll write and let you know about the next rehearsal. Notting Hill is too far away. We must find some place in the Strand. Don't you think, Miss Dash? Miss Dash agreed with me that Notting Hill was too far for her to go to rehearsals, and as I handed her out of the cab, she pointed with her parasol across the street, and looking along it, I spied a man in a velvet coat going into the green room club. She said 
he might play Cardin Tyrrell. A friend introduced us, I gave him the part to read, and he came to rehearsal next day with enthusiastic. A boy presented himself, and an excellent boy actor he showed himself to be, giving a good reading of his part, and a few days after Miss Dash's husband relieved me of the stage and management, and seeing that things were going well, I bade everybody goodbye. I'm going back to my writing, but will give you a look in some time next week, towards the end of the week, for my publishers are pressing me to finish some proofs. The proofs were those of Ether Waters, not the proofs of the original edition, they had been corrected in the temple, but the proofs of a cheap edition. I had been tempted by the opportunity a new typesetting gave me of revising my text, and had begun, amid many misgivings, to read a book which I had written, but never read. One reads when the passion of composition is over, and on the proofs of the original edition, one correction alone amounted to the striking out of some twenty or thirty pages, and the writing in of as many more new pages, and there were many others nearly as important, for proofs always inspire me, and the enchanted period lasts until the bound copy arrives. Issa Water was no exception, and turning the pages, seeing all my dreams frozen into the little space of print, I had thrown the book aside and had sat like one, overcome until the solitude of King's Bench Walk became unendurable and forced me to seek distraction in St. James's Theatre, for I did not think that anyone had yet read the book, and was genuinely surprised when the acquaintance stopped me in the lobby and began to thank me for the pleasure my story had given him. But I could not believe that he was not mocking me, and escaped from him, feeling more miserable than before. A little farther on, another acquaintance stopped me to ask if I had written the book with the intention of showing up the evils of betting, and his question was understood as an ironical insinuation that his existence of my book might be excused on account of the moral purpose on the part of the author, or was my intention nearly to exhibit. His second question struck me as intelligent, but strange as coming from him. His writings have since gained some notoriety, but not because he has ever confined himself to the mere exhibition of a subject. The old saw that everything is paid for came into mind. I was paying for the exultation I had experienced when rewriting my proofs, and when I returned to the temple I had fallen into the armchair, without sufficient energy to take off my clothes and turn into bed, wondering at my folly and having supposed that there could have been anything worth reading in Ether Waters. How could there be, since it was I who wrote it? I repeated this myself over and over again. For it is difficult for me to believe any good of myself, within the oftentimes bombastic and truculent appearance that I presented to the world, trembles a heart, shy as a wren in the hedgerow, or a mouse along the wainscoting and the question has always interested me whether I brought this lack of belief in myself into the world with me, or whether it was a gift from nature, or whether I was trained into it by my parents at so early an age that it became part of myself. I lean to the theory of acquisition rather than to that of inheritance, for it seems to me that I can trace my inveterate distrust of myself back to the years when my father and mother used to tell me that I would certainly marry an old woman, on a king who used to come to the door begging. This joke did not wear out, it lasted through my childhood, and I remember still how I used to dread her appearance, or her name, for either was sufficient to incite somebody to remind me of the nuptials that awaited me in a few years. 
I understood very well that the joke rested on the assumption that I was such an ugly little boy that nobody else would marry me. I do not doubt that my parents loved their little boy, but their love did not prevent them laughing at him and persuading him that he was inherently absurd. And it is not wise to do this, for as soon as the child ceases to take himself seriously, he begins to suspect that he is inferior, and I had begun to doubt if I would ever come to much. Even before I failed to read at the age of seven, without hesitating, a page of English written with the long FFs, whereas my father could remember reading the Times aloud at breakfast when he was three, I could see that he thought me a stupid little boy and was ashamed of me, and as the years went by, making things occurred to him in his opinion. The reports that were sent home from school incited him to undertake to teach me when I came back for the holidays, but the more I was taught, the stupider I became, and perhaps the more unwilling to learn. My father was trying to influence me directly, and it is certain that direct influence counts for nothing. We are moulded, but the influence that mould us are indirect, and are known to nobody but ourselves. We never speak of them, and are almost ashamed even to think of them, so trivial do they seem. It requires some little courage to tell that my early distaste for literature was occasioned by my father coming into the billiard room where I was playing and insisting on my reading Burke's French Revolution, nor does it sound very serious to say that a meeting with a cousin of mine who used to paint signboard lions and tigers awakened a love of painting in me that has lasted all my life. He sent me to the Paris to learn painting. I have told my confessions how I found myself obliged to give up painting, having no natural aptitude for it, but I do not know if I tell that in the book. All lay sufficient stress on the fact that the agony of mind caused by my failure was enhanced by my re- by remembrances of the opinion that my father formed of me and my inability to learn at school. I think I am right in saying that I tell in my confessions of terrible insomnias and of a demon who whispered in my ear that it would be no use my turning to literature, my failure would be as great there as it had been in painting. The slight success that has attended my writings did not surprise my relations as such as it surprised me, and what seems curious is that, if the success had been twice what it was, it would not have restored the confidence in myself that I lost in childhood. I'm always a novice, publishing his first book, wondering if it is the worst thing ever written, and I am as timid in life as in literature. It is always difficult for me to believe that my friends are glad to see me. I am never quite sure that I am not a bore, an unpleasant belief, no doubt, but a beneficial one, for it saves me from many blunders, and I owe to it many pleasant surprises that day at Steers when Tonks interrupted me in one of my usual disquisitions on art with... Isn't it nice to have him among us again, criticising our paintings? I had come back from Ireland after an absence of two years, and I shall never forget the delicious emotion that his words caused me. I never suspected my friends would miss me, or that it would mean much to them to have me back again. I was overwhelmed, and where I rousseau, my pages would be filled with instances of my inherent modesty of character, but my way is not Rousseau's. Out of this one instance, the reader should be able, if he be intelligent, to imagine for himself the hundred other exquisite moments that I owe to my inveterate belief in my own inferiority. True that I, true that it has caused me to lose many pleasant hours, as when I imagined that 
some very dear friends of mine were bored by my society and did not wish to see me in their house again, Mary Robinson did not say a word to suggest any such thing, only there are times when he, the belief intensifies in me that nobody does or could care for me, and I did not go to see her for a long while, and would never have gone if I had not met her at the railway station, and if she had not introduced, not asked me if I were on my way to her, and on answering that I wasn't, had not cheerfully replied that I ought to be, it being nearly two years since she had seen me, but you don't want to see me. The last time, just as I was leaving, she looked at me and I tried to explain, but there was nothing to explain. I walked by her side, thinking of the many delightful visits that my imagination had caused me to lose. No doubt, something of the same kind has happened to everybody, but not so often as it happens to me, I am sure of that, and I am quite sure nobody believes he is in the wrong so easily as I do, or is tempted so irresistibly to believe the fault is his if anything goes wrong with his work. If an editor were to return an article to me tomorrow, it would never occur to me to suppose he returned it for any other reason that it is worthlessness, and those who think badly of my writings are always looked upon as very fine judges, while admirers are regarded with suspicion. Summons used to say that he could not understand such a lack of belief side by side with unflagging perseverance, and he often told me that when a manuscript was returned to him, he never doubted the editor to be a fool. The confessions are coming back to me. Rousseau realised in an age that in youth Rousseau was a shy, silly lad, with no indication, apparently, of the genius that awaited him in middle life, always blundering and never with the right word on his lips. But I do not think Rousseau was obsessed by the haunting sense of his own inferiority, not at any rate as much as I am, and I am not sure that he realised sufficiently that the braggart wins but foolish women and the vain man has very few sincere friends. If it had not been for my unchanging belief in my own unworthiness, I might have easily believed in myself to the extent that my contemporaries believe in themselves, and there is little doubt that many of them believe themselves to be men and women of genius, and I am sure it be were better, on the whole, to leave St. James's Theatre heartbroken than to leave it puffed up thinking oneself a great man of letters representing English literature. Even from the point of view of personal pleasure, it were better that I should learn gradually that If the Waters was not such a bad book as I had imagined it to be when the first copy came to me. It were enough that my friends and the press should succeed at length in hammering this trust into me. It were too absurd that I should continue to think it worthless. An artist should know his work to have been well done and it is necessary that it should meet with sufficient appreciation, though indeed it is open to doubt if the vain fumes that arise from the newspapers when the new masterpiece is published be of any good to anybody. Uh, okay. That is... That is us for today, I think. Um, yes, it is. We didn't read that much, uh, but, yeah, I don't know. That's all I can do for now. <clears throat> Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.